Will you turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5? James chapter 5. And the guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. And as they do, if you need a Bible, get their attention so that you can look on as we look together at James chapter 5. And I'd like to read those verses together that we're going to consider, verses 7 through 12. James chapter 5, the Bibles the guys are distributing are marked at that passage, so you can open it quickly, and then look at verses 7 through 12. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the Lord to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes, and your no, no, or you will be condemned. The only way that we can be patient in the present is if we believe that there is hope for the future. It's said that a man can live about 40 days without food, for about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but not for one second without hope. And when I speak of hope for the future, I'm not using the word as we often do to mean a desire that may or may not come to pass. But rather, when the Bible uses the word hope, it refers to a confident expectation that's based upon the very sure promises of God. And so as a result, for the Christian, there should always be hope. A confidence in a better future because God has promised it. And so, when we're impatient with the present then, In those moments at least, it means that we do not truly believe what the Bible says about God's active, but not only active, but God's very wise work in our circumstances and the very better future that He promises for us. I will only respond, you will only respond to difficult situations as God requires us to do if we believe that He is at work and that He will produce something good in what he is allowing. But conversely, if I find myself impatient, then it's a sure sign that I've taken matters into my own hands and I've forgotten that a good God is in control. Now, the situations with which we find ourselves impatient involve two major categories, and we're going to see in our passage James addresses both of these major categories. They involve both people and they involve circumstances. Sometimes my personal exasperation is with people. 
They are not doing what I want. They're not doing it the way I want. They're not doing it as quickly as I want. This shows up for me most often when I'm dealing with wait staff at a restaurant who disappear for long periods of time. Or when the eight young people behind the counter at Tim Hortons are laughing and yucking it up, not realizing that I am in desperate need of some Joe. And as I stand there getting angry, the Holy Spirit reminds me, you know you're preaching on patience this week. I hate when that happens. But you know those are obviously very small things. But the failure to cultivate a heart attitude of patient hope in the small things will result in ill consequences when, not if, we find ourselves in more serious situations. When a big situation comes along, like the end of a building project when everybody is, is tense, or a positive diagnosis, or a job loss, or a challenging relationship, when those kinds of bigger things come along, then the peevishness at the so-called small things will rear its head in all its ugliness in those bigger trials. When we're impatient, it says something, friends, very profound about what we think regarding others and even what we think about God. And so as we look at James' words about this extremely important issue of patience, I ask you as I ask myself, have you come today to be changed by God's Word? You see, it's so easy for us, and so I remind you as I remind myself every so often, it's so easy to just go through the motions, isn't it? This is just what we do on Sunday. This is the time when the guy talks, we endure, and then we dismiss. But we're actually looking at what Almighty God says to us, to me, to you, today. And so let's ask God for open hearts and attentive minds as we go to Him in prayer. Father, we are arrogantly impatient people. I am arrogantly impatient, and I need your help. I need instruction from your word. I need the move of your spirit in order to be moved, motivated to do what your word tells me. My brothers and sisters need that as well. And so we ask for your aid as we look to the pages of your word. Help us to leave this place better equipped to honor you with our lives and with our lips. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are down to the final two messages in the book of James. After that, we're going to begin a study in the book of 1 Peter. And after our grand opening sometime later in the, the year, I want to introduce ourselves to the community by introducing the community to the foundational truths of the Word of God. And so we're going to do a series through the opening chapters of the book of Genesis at that time. But over the next two messages, we're going to conclude our many months survey of the book of James. It's been three weeks since we've been in the book of James, so I want to remind you briefly where we left off and how it is that today's message on patience fits into the overall theme of James' message. This passage, beginning in verse 7 of James chapter 5, begins the conclusion of James' letter. 
And the letter that James wrote ends precisely where it began, speaking of the need for patience. As a matter of fact, the very same word that's translated perseverance in verse 11 of chapter 5 is used in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. There it says, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And both the opening chap passage in chapter 1 and now this concluding passage in chapter 5, both of them show that the road of the Christian life involves adverse circumstances, suffering. And that the end of that road, if we walk it as God has instructed, the end of that road has bright prospects for us on the last day. Chapter 1 and verse 12 tells of a crown that we will receive. And the passage that we're going to consider today reminds us of the blessings, but also the warnings that are related to the Lord's return. Both the opening chapter 1 and now the concluding chapter 5 tell us that God has a good goal in mind for the circumstances of our lives. And so think about this. With all of this emphasis, just in the short letter that James wrote about difficulty, trials, with all of the emphasis that the Word of God as a whole places on adverse situations, don't you think, friends, that we ought to lose the idea that these situations are unusual? Difficulty in a fallen world should not be seen as unusual. Trials should not be seen as unusual, but that's what we do, isn't it? We enter an adverse circumstance and we say, what happened? How did that happen? <laughs> as if we're already in heaven. We live in a fallen world and that's life in a fallen world. And that's why the title of this message at the top of your outline is Situation Normal. God's Word tells us over and over that there will be one day a new normal. And whether we believe that, though, is going to affect how we handle the problems of the present. And so I invite you to take a look at the outline that's been inserted in your program. And remember I said that these circumstances that are difficult for us and that require patience fall into these two major categories, that of people and that of circumstances. Well, the first one is people in verses 7 through 9. We should be patient with people. Now there are two words that are used in these five verses, two Greek words. They are both sometimes translated patience, but because they are indeed different Greek words, your New Testament was originally written in Greek, most of you know. Because of that, the NIV that most of you have, the English translation that most of you have, has two different words in these five verses. One is patience, the other perseverance. And what's the difference between these two words? Well, the one translated patience refers to self-restraint that does not hastily retaliate when wronged. Self-restraint that does not hastily retaliate when wronged by someone else. So it's a word admonishing patience with regard to, to people. But then the other word that's translated helpfully perseverance is the attitude which does not easily succumb 
under suffering. It's a word that means to bear up under pressing, difficult circumstances. And so one relates to our approach to difficult people, the other our approach to difficult circumstances. And so, first of all, we see that we should be patient with people. We'll only be patient with people if we recognize what I say next in your outline, and that is that these situations involving people are temporary. They are temporary. Verses 7 and 8, be patient then, brothers. And notice the then there. Be patient then. Because it's drawing a conclusion based upon what's just been said. And three weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. And there in verses 1 through 6, we're told of the kind of adverse circumstance that the readers of James' letter were living under. They were being exploited by those who were rich. And verses 1 through 6 talk about all of the difficulty that went along with that. And so then, therefore, because you're in this situation involving particular people who are giving you a hard time, then you need to be instructed. Therefore, be patient, brothers. But how long are you to be patient? We are to be patient recognizing that this trial, this difficulty involving these people is temporary because the first line says, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord comes. And so this will end. This too shall pass. It will certainly end at the time that the Lord comes. As we will see later, the Lord may choose to end it before that, but it will certainly end by that time. And so you can be patient. Why? Because you know you have a confident expectation of a better future as it relates to difficult people. Now I want to point something out to you about what verses 7 and 8 say regarding the Lord's coming. Verse 7 says, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. And then verse 8 says, Be patient, stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. The word that's used there in verses 7 and 8 is the Greek word parousia. And it's used a couple of ways in Scripture. Same word. I'm going to show you in a couple of passages in Scripture. Use this word to speak of someone's expected arrival. They're they're coming. So so so-and-so is coming over. We're expecting that person to arrive, and so we're expecting the Lord to return. And it's used that way in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where Paul, who wrote that, says, I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived, same word, when they, when they came. But then it, it also refers not just to the expectation that someone is coming, but the fact that that coming is going to mean their very presence with you. And it's used that way in Philippians chapter 2. Dear friends, continue to obey, not only in my, and here's the same word, presence, but now much more in my absence. And so it's emphasizing not just the Lord's expected arrival, but that that arrival will mean His very presence with us. Relationships will change. The relationships that are difficult and that are causing you adversity now will be radically altered. And our focus will be upon the presence of the Lord. And all of those who are with us 
will likewise be focused on the very presence of the Lord himself. Now it's interesting that James just has to say, at the beginning of this section, be patient, brothers, until the Lord's coming. And he doesn't explain anything about the Lord's coming. The reason that he doesn't have to explain anything about it is because they know all about it. The Lord Jesus gave ample information about the fact that he is going to come and he is ultimately going to establish his kingdom with him as the very present king. And so James doesn't enter into a long explanation or description. He assumes they know all about it. It was a familiar truth to the first century and New Testament church. And if we are going to be believers as they are called to be, then we need to learn to think in terms of New Testament priorities. And if we're going to do that, the fact of the Lord's second coming, the sure expectation of it, and our desire, hear this friends, not to be ashamed when He returns, should motivate the way we live in relation to one another. One commentator has said, it's certainly, it's certainly the case that there are about 300 references in the New Testament to the second coming of Jesus, about one of every 13 verses from Matthew to Revelation. And so we are told to focus our attention not on the present, but on the confident expectation we have of the Lord's coming and the radical re-altering that that will mean of our relationships, both with one another and in the very presence of the Lord Himself. In each of the four sections of this passage. You notice in your outline I've got four sections. I've got an A and a B and an A and a B. You all see that? Four sections. In each of those four sections, after verses 7 and 8, and then at the end of verse 9, after verses 10 and 11, and also in, in verse 12, all of them include this forward look. Two of them are encouragements, and two of them are warnings for us. And so you see at the end of verse 8, the Lord's coming is near. That's, an that's to be an encouragement to us. But then you see at the end of verse 9, a warning to us, the judge is standing at the door. Then you see at the end of verse 11, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And the line just before that speaks of what the Lord is finally looking to bring about in our lives. And so it's a look forward to the Lord, the gracious, the, the merciful and compassionate Lord returning. But then that's followed, fourthly, by a warning. That if we're not careful in the way we respond to our circumstances, we could find ourselves condemned. And so you have this encouragement and you have these, these warnings. And they are all focused upon the Lord's return. At the end of verse number 8... It's be patient and stand firm. Notice, because the Lord's coming is, is near. And then at the end of verse 11, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now let me just define those words, and then we'll go through the verses in some detail uh, in just a moment. But compassionate and merciful is the Lord who is going to surely return. And that word compassionate means abundantly tender-hearted. The word for, for mercy is one that sums up all of God's loving care for His people. It's the same word that's used in a famous passage that many of you know. 
Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. It tells us there that we are to, in view of God's, do you remember, God's mercies, present our bodies as living sacrifices. Now, what are those mercies that Romans chapter 12 tells us about? In view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Well, those mercies are all of what chapters 1 through 11 of the letter to the Romans tells us. And now, beginning in verse 12, Paul, who wrote it, is making a transition to say, now based upon all of that, all that I've just told you about the salvation and the sanctification that's available in and through Jesus. Now based on that, you're to present your bodies as living sacrifices. And he calls all of that, all 11 chapters, he calls God's mercies. That's what we have to look forward to as an encouragement from our God. Verse 7 says, be patient then until the Lord's coming both encouragement but also warning. And then James gives us an illustration in verse 7. Take a look with me if you will. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. And how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. And so the farmer is spoken of here as James is wont to do other times including chapter 1 of his letter. Now, you remember that his older brother Jesus worked in his father's carpenter shop. You remember some of other, James' other associates were fishermen. As often as he mentions this idea of crops, you might be tempted to think that he worked the land, and he may have, for all we know. But James is uh, fascinated with the illustration of how the farmer works and how that relates to our patience before God. And he says the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. And he's patient for the autumn and spring rains. In Palestine, there would be two times of rain. There would be what's called the early rain and the later rain. And the early rain would come in October. That's the autumn rain that he speaks of. And the farmer would, would plant. And the rain would come and would allow germination of the seed. But then in the spring would come the later rain so that the crop can, can grow and yield, and yield its, its crop and its fruit. And James says this is the way the Lord works. The farmer doesn't control the farming situation and its outcome just as we don't control the circumstances that produce the fruit in our lives. But God controls what the farmer yields, and God controls what's going to be yielded in our lives as well. But he doesn't allow us to escape responsibility either. We have responsibility in this process to make sure that what God is intending to bless us with actually comes to fruition. We have an active role. Jesus spoke of this in Mark chapter 4. When he said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or he gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. And so we don't know 
why God is doing this particular thing in our life at this particular time. But we do know that he has a harvest. And just like the farmer has a responsibility to participate in what is being produced, so we have a responsibility. And James tells us about that responsibility. In verse 8, you too then, like the farmer, be patient and stand firm. When it says stand firm, it's literally establish or strengthen your hearts. Some translations say that very thing, strengthen your hearts. Choose of Jesus in his determination to fulfill his responsibility for coming to earth and going to the cross of Calvary and accomplishing the mission that his father sent him to accomplish. In Luke chapter 9, notice what the Bible says of Jesus. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. When it says he resolutely set out, it's this strengthened his heart, established his heart toward Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying, there is nothing that's going to keep me from fulfilling the mission that God the Father has sent me to accomplish. And likewise now, James is saying, even though God is ultimately the one who gives the harvest and gives the, the yield, we, like the farmer, have a responsibility, and we must strengthen our hearts, establish our hearts, in order to participate in what the Lord has for us. We're to watch our hearts. And so when we are impatient with people or with circumstances, from where does that come? Like all things, it comes from our hearts. We're not only to watch our hearts, but then in verse 9, James tells us we're to watch our fellowship, our relationships with one another. Notice verse 9. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now, do you see the connection? The word patience that's used in verses 7 through 9 is the one that's used of adverse circumstances as it relates to people. As it relates to, to people. And now James is saying in, in verse 9 that we will be judged in the way we react to those difficult people. Don't grumble against one another. Or you will be judged. And the judge is standing at the door. Now hear this. Impatience with people will be characteristic of you and me to the extent that we think other people are idiots. The more arrogant I am, the more impatient I will be. Because nobody else knows what they're doing. I'm surrounded by idiots. Why can't everybody be like me? And you all know what I'm talking about. Because every last one of us has a higher view of ourselves and our abilities than we ought to have. And as a result, we are censorious in the way we approach others. We make, they make one mistake and they're denounced. It's because of our arrogance. 
And we will be impatient with people to the extent that we are arrogant in our thinking about ourselves, and as a result, nobody else knows what they're doing. Now, you know, we're going to see in just a bit in verses 10 through 12 that we will be impatient not just with others, but we will be impatient with God because of the circumstances He allows into our lives to the extent that we don't believe God knows what He's doing. We're impatient with others because they don't know what they're doing. And we're impatient in our circumstances that God allows into our lives because deep down we wonder, does God really know what He's doing? And when we take that heart attitude into our relationships with people and into the circumstances that God allows, James is warning us twice in this passage, you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door, end of verse 9. And that's why I say in your outline, our reactions are accountable. We are accountable for our reactions to the circumstances that God allows in our lives. Our situations with these people that are difficult for us to handle and abide are temporary. We are accountable, though, for our reactions. And those reactions are rooted in our hearts, says verse 8. The Bible tells us many times that we will be judged even as believers in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us this, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Verse 8 says, the Lord's coming is near. Verse 9 says, the judge is standing at the door. And yet, 2,000 years have passed since that was written. So how is that? How is it the judge is at the door? How is it that the Lord's coming is said to be near? Well, what many people do is fail to take into consideration all that Jesus said in those many passages in which he spoke about his return and our confident expectation of that return and our longing for that return. But do you remember some of the things Jesus said about that? No man knows. No man knows the day or the hour. Remember that? And yet, how many Christians are trying to set dates? How many of you buy books by people who try to set dates? Who try to figure out when Jesus is coming back? Guess what? You, you ain't going to figure out when Jesus is coming back. Okay? And Jesus told you that, so give it up. In relation to the second coming of Jesus, our first responsibility is not to devise a calendar of the future or to predict as near as we can when he's going to come, nor are we to try to interpret world events in order to discern signs of his coming. Our responsibility, says James and Scripture over and over again, is to look into our hearts and our lives, now hear this, to ensure that we are ready to stand before Him without shame and be to the praise of His glory and pleasure. And so that's why we're told the Lord is near. It's a call to readiness. He can come at any time. And the time the Father has appointed and known to the Father and not to us. But the question is, am I ready? Are you ready to stand before the Lord in light of His sure coming? And When He comes, His full purpose will be accomplished in us. 
Verse 12 holds out the possibility of condemnation, just like the end of verse 9 does. And here's what all that means. The blessing that God intends for His people can be forfeited. In fact, that's a word you might just consider thinking about, writing down. Forfeited, and thus the warning. God issues this warning to us because I have told you as your good God and your Father the things, the good things that I'm seeking to accomplish in your life even through adverse people and as we're going to see adverse circumstances but the blessings that I intend can be forfeited and thus the warnings. Do not grumble against each other or you will be judged. And so we are called to be patient with people. And then in verses 10 through 12, and secondly in your outline, we are called to be patient with problems, with people and with problems. Verse 10, brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. And here's that other word. This involves not people, but this involves, involves circumstances in most contexts. And so Jeremiah was placed by God in difficult circumstances. There were those who wanted to stop him from speaking in the name of the Lord. Ezekiel suffered painful bereavement. That was the setting in which he delivered his message to God's people. Daniel if he had not suffered the deportation from Jerusalem to Babylon, we would have never heard of Daniel as we now know him or have benefited from his ministry. Hosea's marriage breakdown was in itself the Lord's word to and through Hosea. And so over and over again in God's word and in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament where the prophets spoke, privilege and suffering, suffering and ministry belong together in the lives of God's prophets and God's people. And so we are to be patient not only with people, but with the problems that our good God allows to come our way for his good purposes. As we do that, we have to remember, as I say in your outline, our situations are purposeful. Our situations are purposeful. The circumstances that you are living in right now are by God's design. None of it has taken God by surprise. They have His good purpose as their end. In fact, in the middle of verse 11, you've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the NIV says the Lord finally brought about. And the word that's translated, what the Lord finally brought, is a word teleos. It means purpose. It means end. God had a purpose and an end in the sufferings of Job. You all remember Job? But God had an end in mind for all that happened in the life of Job. And now we're being reminded here that God has an end in mind and an ultimately good end in mind for all of the stuff that He allows into your life and into my life as well. Our situations are purposeful. And so I ask you, I started at the beginning by saying you will only be patient in the present to the extent that you believe that there is a favorable future, something better in the future. And so I ask you, do you believe God has a better tomorrow?
or do you just desire that it'll be better without any real basis? Has God not promised that it will be better? Has God not proven that it will be better by raising Jesus from the dead, the one who will come and in whose presence we will be when all things are made new and there's a new normal for our relationships and for our circumstances, and yet we forget that. And often, let's be honest, we don't believe that. We are often like, you know, we're hoping and desiring, but not that confident expectation. We're like Annie, you know, the musical. The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. Just thinking about tomorrow clears away the cobwebs and the sorrow till there's none. Nonsense. Just thinking about it doesn't make it happen. There's someone who makes it happen. And the someone is God Almighty. Or in the words of those great theologians, Fleetwood Mac. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Why not think about times to come and not about the things that you've done? Now hear this gem. If your life was bad to you, just think what tomorrow will do. How does that help? If your life was bad to you, just think what tomorrow will do. Well, it may be more of that junk or worse. You see, friends, it's not just thinking about it. It's not just wishful thinking. It is the hope of Scripture based on the sure promises of God, the one who has made very clear to us in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and his promised second coming that there will be a better tomorrow. That indeed our circumstances are temporary. That God has in all of our situations his purpose, his teleos. But to the extent that I am impatient with those circumstances, I am saying, and you are saying, I'm not sure God knows what he's doing. So are you impatient in your circumstances? If you are, you are saying, you're not sure God is all wise. In our reactions to what God does in those circumstances, James tells us, I say in your outline, our reactions are liable, liable. That is, we are liable to God's judgment. Again, James repeats, verse 12, Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes, your no, no, or you will be condemned. Now, what is that about? You know, in the midst of adverse circumstances, we are prone to make all kinds of promises to God. God, just, just get me out of this and I will fill in the blank. I'll be a missionary to Africa, I'll whatever, fill in the blank. And then when the thing passes, we don't fulfill the vow. And God is telling us here, not when it says above all, do not swear, it's not saying don't use profanity, but we shouldn't do that either. But it's talking about do not take an oath before God that says God if you will 
get me out of this thing, I will do X. But rather, be patient and get out of the circumstance what God has intended for you. We see the negative example of these kinds of vows in the life of Peter. You remember that Peter, the Bible says, began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, them being the enemies of Jesus, those who were carrying Jesus away to have him crucified. Peter is now scared for his own safety and he says, I don't know the man. And immediately the Bible says a rooster crowed because Jesus said before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me, Peter. But Peter is the one who had declared foolishly with his vow, even if all fall away, I will not. I promise, I vow. But then we see Peter breaking that vow. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. As you endure, bear up under the suffering that God allows into your life to produce His good end, His good purpose. And I say as your take-home truth in your outline, we can endure our situations when, and I might add only when, we have confidence in the outcome. I'm going to conclude with an illustration from the life of my daughter. And my daughters always get scared when I, when I do this. But they've given me permission within certain bounds to use them as illustrations. And when Annie was little, Annie's still little. She's only 15. Annie's in this room. Annie, you think you're big, but you're still my baby. Okay? <laughs> but when she was really little, and like many kids, things go bump in the night, and she would, she would be afraid. I would have her think about all the good things that God has done in her life. And I would sit by her bed, often hold her, and say, let's recount together all the good things that God has done in your life. Let's look at what God has done in the past and the health that he's given you and the family that he's given you and the home that he's given you and the salvation that he's given you. Let's look to the past. Let's think about the present. Let's think about stuff that we are doing and God is allowing you to do right now. And then I would say, Annie, and there's always the future. And the future for a Christian is always better. It's always better than even the good things that I have going on now. And it is certainly better than all the adverse things that are going on in my life right now. And that ought to motivate us in the present. The fact that God is most assuredly producing a better life for us, better relationships, better circumstances with the coming of Jesus, that God has in His design, in His purpose for those relationships and in those circumstances, the development of God, Christ-like character in our lives, all of that should be our confidence to bear up under and endure those relationships and those circumstances. Let's ask God to help us as we seek to do that this week. Father, we thank you for this look into your word. We thank you for the reminder that we are impatient people because we are arrogant people. 
We think we're better than the others who exasperate us. I think that. We think that we know better than you do what should be happening in our lives. Oh God, forgive us of our pride. And Lord, humble us, as your servant James has told us over and over in this book, to humbly receive the word that's been planted within us. To humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. I pray, Lord, that all of us who came into this room with these arrogant attitudes about ourselves and then vis-a-vis others and our circumstances and even toward you, that your spirit and your word have humbled us so that we see that we are not the masters of our own fate, nor should we be. That our good and glorious God is accomplishing his purpose in our circumstances and through our relationships. Help us, Lord, not to sin with our tongue. In those adverse relationships you allow by grumbling against one another. Help us not to sin with our tongues by making rash promises to you about all of the marvelous things we will do if you get us out of this particular circumstance. Help us rather to follow the instruction of your servant and be patient and persevere until you come. Help us to manifest that this week in our relationships and circumstances. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.